Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, today we're debating God of Genocide, a debate on biblical violence, and we are starting right now. With our Christian guest, Dr. Randall Rouser, pictured on the right. Thanks so much for being with us. The floor is all yours for your opening statement. Great. Maybe I can just take an extra 10 seconds to read the debate resolution, James, if that's okay. Uh, So the debate resolution, the Bible with its divinely commanded violence wasn't inspired by a perfect God. And I'm arguing the denial. So uh, now I'll launch into my formal comments. So thanks to Modern Day Debate for the invitation to debate and to John for agreeing to participate. I'd like to start with a clarification of the scope of debate. My burden is not to provide reasons to believe the Bible is inspired by God. That's the subject of another debate. Instead, we're debating whether the fact that the Bible includes particular texts describing divine violence is consistent with the Bible's having been inspired by God. Loftus is arguing it is not consistent, whereas I am arguing that it is. The way I establish that consistency is by providing a perfectly orthodox Christian account of how to understand the biblical text being inspired by God, despite the presence of these troublingly violent texts. While there are many different types of violence we could talk about, for the sake of time, I will focus on what are arguably the most troubling cases, namely passages where God is described as commanding the destruction and expulsion of the Canaanites in Deuteronomy 7 and 20, and Joshua 1 to 12. Christians have offered various different responses to this problem. One popular approach is to argue that while God did issue these divine commands, they are not themselves problematic when interpreted correctly and understood in historical context. For example, Paul Copan and Matthew Flanagan in their book, Did God Really Command Genocide?, argue that passages in Deuteronomy and Joshua that describe God commanding the killing and expulsion of Canaanites from the promised land actually conform to the standards of just war. However, in my book, Jesus Loves Canaanites, I argue that Copan and Flanagan's analysis fails, and thus that the texts describing these actions meet contemporary legal definitions of genocide and ethnic cleansing. So it seems to me that the way forward is not to explain how, in fact, God issued these terrible divine commands, Rather, it is to explain how a text that is divinely inspired may consistently include some descriptions of God's actions that are literally false. Now, no doubt some people will find that to be a surprising claim, so it is important to note at the outset that it has always been a standard Christian position to recognize that the Bible contains descriptions about God which are literally false. For example, biblical descriptions of God having a body, or being ignorant of future events, or growing angry, or of changing his mind, or even of acting in time, have all standardly been interpreted as anthropomorphic and thus literally false. And that is even true if the original human author himself did not think of them as anthropomorphic. In addition, central to the Christian understanding of Scripture is the notion of progressive revelation, according to which the divine nature and will are revealed more fully over time. For example, Exodus 33:20 says nobody can see God and live, but Jesus reveals in John 14:9 that one can indeed see God in virtue of seeing him. 
Psalm 11.5 says God hates the wicked, but John 3.16 teaches that God loves the whole world. Such developing theology and internal critique is standardly interpreted in terms of progressive revelation. It is also understood to be divine accommodation. As any teacher adapts to the subject matter to the understanding of the student, so God adapts the subject matter of revelation to the audience, and adaptation can allow for some degree of accommodation to the errant epistemic horizons of the audience. To sum up, uh, the presence of literally false descriptions of God in the Bible, including progressive revelation that accommodates fallible human perspectives, this just is part of standard Christian Bible reading. Before we go further, we should clarify how certain popular assumptions about the Bible and the nature of biblical inspiration make it seem problematic that the Bible would include false descriptions. Once we strip away those misguided notions, the perception of inconsistency dissolves. To begin with, it is popular to think of the Bible as functioning like an owner's manual for the human person or a set of instructions for how to get to heaven. Needless to say, there is no room for false statements within owner's manuals or life-saving directions. So if that is your assumption as to what the Bible is, you'll predictably see a problem. But that is most emphatically not what the Bible is. For a more accurate picture, think of a famous textbook, the Norton Anthology of American Literature. This anthology is an expansive and diverse omnibus which spans four centuries of American history, consisting of the writings of men and women from a wide range of experiences, cultures, and socioeconomic backgrounds. The writings in the collection exemplify a diversity of genre and style, including poetry, short story, letters, speeches, novel excerpts, and much more. The editor selected the various texts that fill the pages of the book as a way to tell the story of the American people. The Bible is a lot like this venerable textbook. Like the Norton Anthology, it is an extremely diverse collection composed by many different people, writing in different genres, including pithy wisdom sayings, poetry, prophecy, gospel, apocalyptic law, epistolary, and so on. The text was composed in three different languages, in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and written in several distinct cultural contexts over a thousand years. Far from being like a simple set of instructions for heaven, the Bible is a vast and diverse collection, an ancient library. And like any library distant from the reader and culture and time, it requires care and interpretation. Now let's turn to the other concept, inspiration. Many people assume this is a process in which God directly acts upon particular individuals, somehow taking control of their cognitive faculties and leading them to write down particular texts, rather like a violinist moves a bow over strings. Again, with that image, one is not surprisingly incredulous that God would directly inspire people to write down false statements about God's nature and commands. But I believe this is also a false image, at least insofar as it is invoked as a general account of inspiration. The basic view of inspiration I accept here is a model of appropriation, in which God sovereignly works as a divine editor. He perfectly foreknows what particular individuals will write, and he appropriates specific writings into his collection, much as the editor of the Norton Anthology appropriates the words of various Americans into his collection. 
the editor of the Norton Anthology could have many reasons for including texts that convey views divergent from his own and using those texts to convey a different meaning than that intended by the original author. Similarly, God could have many reasons for including texts in the Bible that include views divergent from his own, and within God's collection, they come to convey a different meaning than that intended by the original human author. So how do we interpret this complex library? From a Christian perspective, the interpretive key is conformity to Jesus. In 2 Timothy 3, 15-17, Paul writes, from infancy, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul says here that the purpose of Scripture is to make us like Jesus. And what does that look like exactly? When asked in Matthew 22, what is the greatest law, Jesus replied to love God with all one's heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself. And keep in mind that for Jesus, neighbor means the outsider, the proverbial stranger, leper, prisoner, tax collector, Samaritan, or Canaanite. All the law and prophets, he said, hang on these two commandments. Thus, Christians have always recognized that the Bible reading should be guided by love of God and neighbor. As Augustine wrote 1,600 years ago, whoever thinks that he understands the Holy Scripture or any part of them, but puts such an interpretation upon them as does not tend to build up a twofold love of God and neighbor, does not yet understand them as he ought. Faithful Bible reading is that which brings about the increased love of God and neighbor to the end of becoming more like Jesus. Needless to say, if you interpret a text in such a way that God literally commanded actions which constitute contemporary war crimes, like genocide and ethnic cleansing, then you are not loving your neighbor, and thus you are not reading the text as you ought. You might be wondering why God appropriated such a complex collection as this, as his inspired word. The fact is, however, that this complexity fits squarely within the logic of the Judeo-Christian tradition in which piety and devotion emerged through the very act of wrestling with complexity and questions. The background is found in Genesis 32, the famous story where Jacob wrestles through the night with the angel of the Lord, who is the Lord. This story functions, functions as an etiology, an account of the origin of Israel as a people. As Jacob wrestles with the angel, so God's people are to wrestle with God and the means to wrestle with, his, uh, with him through his text. And so Jacob receives the name Israel, which is one who strives with God, and anyone who does the same likewise strives with God. Now, in my book, Jesus Loves Canaanites, I describe various ways that Christians have wrestled with these passages in Deuteronomy and Joshua in accord with these formative ethical lens, love of God and neighbor. For example, accommodationists like Christopher Wright uh, say the text describes an accommodation to morally imperfect standards of ancient warfare. Ancient allegorists like Origen interpret these texts as symbolic accounts of the soul's sanctification. Spiritualizers like Douglas Earle interpret the contrast between Rahab and Achan as intentionally subverting the very in-group, out-group distinctions that make violence possible. Finally, providential errantists like Eric Siebert find in the text a challenge to the Christian to read in solidarity with all oppressed peoples, including Canaanites. 
Well, in this opening statement, I have explained how a divinely inspired text may consistently include literally false statements about God. I did so by explaining that the Bible is not a simple roadmap to heaven or instructions uh, for heaven, but a complex library of divinely appropriated human experience, encompassing figurative language, which may be understood to be literally false, progressive revelation, which includes accommodation to some degree of errant perspective. The Christian is invited to enter into the process of this devotional reading with the complexity of the text in community, and they should do so always to seek to cultivate love of God and neighbor to the end of becoming like Jesus. And so to conclude, the fact that the Bible includes particular texts describing divine violence is indeed consistent with the Bible's having been inspired by God. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Rouser, and we will switch it over. But before we do, I want to say, folks, thrilled to have you here. If it's your first time here at Modern Day Debate, we are a neutral platform hosting debates on science, religion, and politics, and we hope you feel welcome no matter what walk of life you're from. Also, folks, thrilled as this Friday, Tom Jump will be taking on Arden of Eden on a controversial, juicy debate. So hit that subscribe button and that notification bell as well as you don't want to miss that one. And with that, we'll kick it over to John Loftus. We're thrilled to have you here, John. Thanks so much for being with us. And the floor is all yours. Well, thanks for uh, having me. I'm, I appreciate being on the show. Thanks, Randall, for uh, inviting me. Uh, we share some things on this view. We share our, our moral in intuitions, that's for sure. And um, so let me proceed to read. <clears throat> There's so much divinely caused and commanded violence in the Bible, it can be said that the fear of an angry, punishing God is its most prevalent theme, hands down. From the irrational and horrific punishments in the Garden of Eden to the irrational and horrific punishments predicted in the book of Revelation and everything in between, we see an angry, cruel, and barbaric God. That's his usual mode of operation. If people obeyed, they were rewarded, but woe to the people who didn't obey. No wonder serious biblical scholars argue that the God of the Bible is modeled after ancient kings who were themselves often cruel toward their own subjects. God is just like what we find in the story of Job. Job was a good man, but God destroyed everything he had, including killing sons and daughters and, and servants just to win a bet with Satan. <clears throat> Such a wanton disregard toward a human being is utterly reprehensible and barbaric. Kings could do that, but a perfectly good God should not do it. <clears throat> Tonight, everything hinges on Rouser's moral intuitions. His moral intuitions cause him to believe in two contradictory, irreconcilable propositions. On the one hand, he believes the Bible uniquely and unmistakably reveals the actions and commands of a God. On the other hand, he rejects the violence in the Bible, which uniquely and unmistakably reveals a cruel God. To accomplish this feat, Rouser offers a scenario in his book <clears throat> to show we can sometimes trust our intuitions despite the lack of, uh, of objective evidence. He asks us to consider a man who sincerely believed he was innocent of a crime, even though all the objective evidence pointed to his guilt. Rouser claims the man is in a position to know he's innocent because he personally knows that he's innocent, even if the objective evidence points to him. So let's picture this. There are several eyewitnesses along with video footage of the, of the man killing someone with a gun he had purchased the day before, which was found at the scene of the crime with his fingerprints on it. With this objective evidence, the man should honestly accept that he has a serious case of amnesia or been drugged, hypnotized, or even lobotomized. He is guilty beyond reasonable doubt. 
And I think there's a psychological reason Rouser uses this particular analogy. It's because he is that man. He's the one who, as an apologist, must defend the existence and goodness of an imaginary deity at all costs, despite the overwhelming objective evidence to the contrary. The very fact he uses such an absurd analogy, in my opinion, is a tacit admission that the needed objective evidence does not exist. <clears throat> the reason Rouser maintains the Bible is a divinely inspired revelation of a good God isn't because of the texts in the Bible. It's because he imagines himself communicating with a divine friend who only exists in his head. He should love singing the lyrics in the worship hymn in the garden, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. In crass terms, Rouser is a sophisticated counterpart to a babbling bum who seems to be talking to someone else as he walks down the street. I mean, no offense. Rouser is a brilliant man, passionate, likable. It's just that he uses a reason in defense of the absurd. <clears throat> but what exactly are moral intuitions? On my view, they maintain, mainly stem from empathy, the ability to understand and share the feelings of others as equal persons who are deserving of respect, dignity, sympathy, and compassion. Once we stop viewing and treating other people as non-persons and view them with dignity and of equal value, we are able to be decent human beings, kind people, compassionate neighbors, loving citizens, and global humanitarians. Upon realizing this, we inevitably will reject the Bible with its God as a product of an ancient barbaric era. There's no rescuing the God of the Bible, since that God was created by ancient barbaric people. <clears throat> what we have in the Bible are the codified ethics of the moral intuitions of ancient people. It's time to be consistent by rejecting the Bible and its God in total. <clears throat> if Rouser still wants to talk in terms of moral intuitions, he should question several important Christian beliefs of his. He should reject that the Adam and Eve story as reprehensible, it reprehensible in what's best described as the mere quest for knowledge by the first pair of humans. Yet God punished them along with every sentient being from the beginning of time with all the suffering this world has ever experienced. Furthermore, he should reject the belief that our sins make us deserving of intense agony forever in hell. He should also reject the belief that a contemporary pure and innocent person needed to die a horrible death in the, on the cross to atone for our sins, punished as he was in such a gruesome way by such a kind, loving God. Rather should reject his belief that his God only saves people who accept Jesus by faith in, in their lives, and including the deathbed conversions of sex traffickers, drug lords, and mafia hitmen, rather than saving good, kind, decent, loving people. In Roger's book, Jesus Loves Canaanites, Biblical Genocide in Light of Moral Intuition, he talks about the Jesus Principle. This intuitive moral principle allows him to deny that God commanded the Canaanite genocide. He writes, the Jesus Principle is predicated on the assumption that Jesus is the final and ultimately authoritative locus of divine revelation. As a result, Jesus provides the final guide for all interpretive interpretation and, and, and application. So let's take a look. Uh, but before I do, I would find it strange if Rouser didn't accept the authority of Paul, the most important apostle of Jesus. <clears throat> While Jesus doesn't explicitly affirm the Canaanite genocide, uh, Paul does. When preaching in Antioch, he said, quote, The God of Israel chose our fathers and made them great in the land of Egypt and led them out of it. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance, Acts chapter 13. <clears throat> the book of Hebrews also affirms the Canaanite genocide. In the famous faith chapter, it praises Rahab, the prostitute's, uh, 
praises Rahab's uh, faith, a prostitute who helped the Israelites destroy the city of Jericho by hiding two men who had been spies uh, for the city. Now back to Jesus, leading up to a shocking conclusion. Jesus affirmed the truth and permanence of every letter of the law. In Luke 16, 17, Jesus said it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one letter of the law to become void. In saying this, Jesus affirmed all the laws of the Hebrew God, Yahweh, who always seems to be threatening violence, committing violence, and commanding violence upon others. This includes killing witches, heretics, homosexuals, people who work on the Sabbath day, people who commit adultery, people who uh, commit bestiality. Uh, uh, false prophets, and children who merely insult or strike their parents. Jesus also affirmed three morally atrocious biblical stories. Jesus affirmed the genocidal story of Noah. In Matthew 24, he says, As it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be at the coming of the Son of Man. For the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving marriage, up until the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Two, Jesus affirmed the genocidal story of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Luke 17, 28 through 30, uh, we read Jesus saying, On that day, the, on the day that Lot went in, on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Now for the shocking conclusion. Three, Jesus affirmed honor killings by stoning. This might shock you. The Pharisees accused Jesus of being too lenient in his observance of the law. So Jesus counterpunches them in Mark chapter 7, verse 9 through 12, saying, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corbin, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Corbin is an Aramaic word that refers to a sacrifice, oath, or a gift to God. The Pharisees allowed for this loophole so someone could make an oath to offer a gift to the temple, like one would uh, set up a trust fund, in order to avoid giving it for the care of one's aging parents. Jesus' first scriptural quote, to honor your father and mother, is one of the Ten Commandments. Jesus' second scriptural quote, that anyone who curses, that is, literally dishonors their father or mother, is to be put to death, is found in Exodus chapter 21, 17, and Leviticus chapter 29. <clears throat> Jesus says the Corbin loophole sets aside these two commands of God. For such a son would be disobeying a direct command of God by dishonoring his parents, while the Pharisees would be disobeying God's command by not putting him to death. Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21 uh, elaborates. <clears throat> if someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders of the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. Why, he's a glutton and a drunkard. <laughs> That's what it says. Then all the men of his town are to stone him to death. In this, Jesus is affirming the Old Testament law of honor killings by stoning, for only if both of the laws Jesus cites are to be obeyed can this analogy succeed, that the Pharisees have set aside the laws of God in order to observe their traditions. Roger is therefore impaled on the horns of a dilemma. 
Give up the Jesus principle or give up your moral intuitions. You can't have them both. Roger claims both that God was accommodating his commands to their hardened hearts and or that God was progressively leading believers to civilized notions about morality down through the centuries. Hindsight justifications like these can only mean God's revelation in the Bible is indistinguishable from him not revealing anything at all. If God cannot do better than that, he might as well be dead to us. Thank you. Thank you very much. We are now going to switch into open conversation mode, folks. Want to let you know, though, before we do that, our guests are linked in the description. And so we want to encourage you, as you've heard both Randall and John's opening statements, folks, their links are waiting for you down in the description. And that includes if you are listening to this debate via podcast. This modern day debate now is available on podcast if you haven't yet pull up Modern Day Debate on your favorite podcast app. And if you're listening via podcast, you can find both John and Randall's link, or I should say links, in the description of that podcast episode as well. So thank you very much, gentlemen. The floor is all yours for open dialogue. I want to ask Randall, uh, had you considered that passage about an honor killing from Jesus before? Yeah, I have an article on it uh, called Does Jesus Command the Killing of Children in Mark 7.10 on my blog. So I think, first of all, for example, the, the main issue there that Jesus is dealing with is the hypocrisy of his audience, that they're picking and choosing what their traditions are, and that the, the notion of the actual function of the law there with respect to the honor killing that you're referencing is actually incidental to the point that he's making, and that he wasn't actually affirming the stoning of children there, what he was, what we is challenging was the hypocrisy of his audience. But to make that point, he's not going to address what is incidental to his point. What is more important, I think, is the way that Jesus interacts with the woman caught in adultery in Acts, or sorry, in John chapter eight, where he says, let he who has sinned throw the first stone. And what he ends up doing there is what Jesus constantly does, which is to begin to deconstruct and dismantle some of the classic ways of understanding the law. So if I could just give a quick uh, sort of general response, John, um, and I, I really appreciate, by the way, your, your opening statement there. Uh, so you referenced how not one jot or tittle of the law would pass away. Uh, another important passage to keep in mind is where Jesus says in Matthew 5.17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So the issue there, I think, that we have to keep in mind is Jesus doesn't come turfing the law. What he comes is to do is to radically reinterpret the meaning of the law. As he says on the road to Emmaus, or as it says in the text on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, 45, that he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures and to see that everything was in fact testifying about him. And so he radically reinterprets the meaning of the law. Well, I, you know, I, I, I had this, I had this book once by John R. W. Stott. Um, I think it was about the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and he uh, he went through he, he went through the Sermon on the Mount really uh, exquisitely well. Have you seen that book yourself? Uh, no. Yeah, um, I have I have that book somewhere on my it's, shelf. It's a good it's a good book, you know. I mean, yeah. I thought I thought it was anyway at the time. And um, he uh, hammers home the fact that Jesus um, continually takes uh, the Pharisees and the scribes and the people of his day back to the the actual commands, the laws of God. And um, to, you know, to say that he's um, doing something different, I mean, I, you know, that, um, 
is emphatically what he denies, you know, in Matthew 5 and in Luke 16. He's saying, uh, you know, I'm the one uh, who's upholding the law and you aren't. Um, and, um, <clears throat> and while he has a new covenant, you know, that's what Jeremiah talks about. Um, he, he doesn't he doesn't abrogate the law. I mean, that was one of his I think. Don't you agree? That was his main thing whenever challenged. Yeah, so he's uh, he's not rejecting the law. What he's doing is radically reinterpreting it. In in Matthew, uh, beginning chapter five, he gives a new law. So Matthew seems to collect the writings of Jesus in, or the teaching of Jesus into five sections, which seems to echo Moses. And one of the themes then is it presents Jesus as a new Moses. He's not rejecting the law. He's radically reinterpreting it. So I gave the example of how the imprecatory psalmist talks about hating your enemies. But Jesus comes along in Matthew 5 and he says, no, I say love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That is a radical challenge to the voice of the imprecatory psalmist. So I'm not denying Stott's view is among the legitimate perspectives in this conversation. What I'm saying is there are many perspectives within this conversation of Christian theological interpretation of scripture, which are consistent with moral intuitions that you and I share about the intrinsic wrongness of certain actions like ethnic cleansing and genocide. Uh, might I give as well a special shout out or thanks for describing me as a bumbling bum or babbling bum. That was a nice line. I've never been. Oh, you know, I, I, uh, you're such a nice guy. Uh, you know, uh, you are. And but, you know, your your whole uh, thing is that you have a personal relationship with someone. I would say is a, a pretend being. And uh, you know, I can't help but not say that's what I think. And uh, yeah, and you uh, you get your messages from God and your your principles of, of interpretation from from God. And I find that. Um, you know, I have to, I have to ridicule it. I just have to, because that's, you're, you're operating from faith and, uh, you know, you, so you reason well, but you have a bad starting point. Well, ridicule doesn't get us anywhere. So I hope you don't resort to ridicule. I, I take that as a little bit of a playful poke on your part. Okay, but you made these two strong claims at the beginning. And I didn't get to, get them down verbatim, but you said, number one, uh, and you said these are contradictory claims that I'm committed to. Number one, the Bible reveals the command of God. Number two, reject uh, the, that you are to reject the violence of the Bible and that there is some alleged contradiction here. But I think that my entire 12 minutes was devoted to showing that there is, in fact, no contradiction. It is fully consistent, um, recognizing, in fact, the plenary inspiration of all Scripture, which is what I was tacitly or implicitly doing by giving a definition as to what I understood inspiration to be. It's all inspired. The question is how you interpret it. Every reader uh, selects certain texts as control texts, for an interpretive framework for other passages. The question is, why are you doing so? And I could go on to some length about the primacy of interpreting through Jesus, but that is what I'm doing. And I, I don't think that you establish as a contradiction here. Well, you have, um, <clears throat> I didn't quote from Second Peter, who affirmed the uh, genocide, genocide of Sodom and Gomorrah and the genocide of, of Noah. Um, uh, but I did mention Hebrews and Paul. Uh, they um, uh, and while J Jesus didn't uh, mention uh, the Canaanite genocide, he did talk about the uh, Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and I really liked your book and the first three chapters where you described the horrors of that, uh, the stoning of uh, how you pronounce her name, Sonia M. I saw that movie, by the way. That uh, that's highly recommended movie mm -hmm. to see what a stoning might look like. Um, 
and um, you know your your description of the Rwandan uh, genocide, uh, which I found it interesting that you said that uh, 90 percent of them are Christians. You know, I think you said Catholics and Seventh Day Adventists. Of course, I raised uh, questions in in my mind: is why would Christians be doing that to other Christians? And you know, um, who have the same Bible? And uh, I can only you know, say that some of it has got to come from the genocide texts, you know, that, that we're reading that you're denying are from God. Now, you, and I think you're just being arbitrary about that because well, I don't like those because they're horrific and they are horrific and you shouldn't like them. But to say all of a sudden, well, I can tell you what's God's word and what isn't, even though Gleason Archer disagrees and John Calvin disagrees and uh, a, a lot of other people down through the centuries would, uh, would not share your moral uh, intuitions, as you call, um, I would call them empathy. Um, you know, I just, I just find it quite arbitrary and capricious, more in line with how you feel than how you should, uh, how you should think. Well, I'm not particularly worried that uh, Gleason Archer and John Calvin don't agree with me. Uh, one thing I did point out in the book is that this is not a new conversation. This is a conversation that goes back to the second, third, fourth, fifth centuries of the church. I spend a significant amount of time talking, for example, about how Origen and Gregory of Nyssa uh, wrestled with these problems and developed these various, which I mentioned briefly, these allegorical spiritualized interpretations. In the modern era, people like C.S. Lewis have done something similar. I referred to this other group I called uh, new spiritualizers, such as Douglas Earl. So that, um, and then I could go on, people like Greg Boyd, there's a great diversity, the point being, there's a great diversity of opinion among Christians as to how to interpret and appropriate biblical violence. And I'm ar arguing one particular interpretation, which is certainly consistent with my moral intuitions, but also is consistent with my theological framework uh, and can affirm plenary inspiration of all scripture. So I don't think that there's evidence of, of inconsistency or of contradictory. Now, you could try to make an argument that it's ad hoc somehow, but I think that that's, you have to make that. I think that that's somewhat subjective in the same way that you said, um, I use a reason and I, I reason in defense for the absurd. Well, absurdity is a relative term. That which you think is absurd in my beliefs, there are certain beliefs you may hold that I find absurd. So the fact that you label something absurd doesn't really get us very far. The question is, can you establish an objective inconsistency in the claims that I've affirmed? And I don't think you have. Well, I can't. And I, I think I know why. I, I'm, as looking through your book, I noticed that you had different principles. And um, one of them is uh, the, 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 call, the first one is called the perfect God principle. You know that God is perfect and in, in knowledge and, and in love, and and he, you say um, um, what the Christian doesn't do is a quote on page one twenty one. What the Christian doesn't do is surrender their commitment to the perfection of God. Um, you know, I may not be able to uh, to sh to show you are inconsistent, just as I couldn't show Gleason Archer that uh, the Bible is not inerrant in every way, in, in, a, in a, you know, every way. <laughs> and you know what I mean, because he wrote the, the book on how to uh, resolve Bible difficulties. He taught where I graduated but, uh, from, but I never had a class with him. But uh, I can't convince someone who uh, isn't going to surrender their commitment to the perfection of God of anything. I mean, that shouldn't be required to do that. Uh, I do I think that the uh, it's inconsistent, even if I can't. I, I, how could I do that? Tell me, how could I show you that? I can't, can I? 
every person with every fundamental worldview, it's always very difficult to speculate on what would be the precise conditions under which you would revise some fundamental aspect of your worldview. But I will say this, that myself wrestling with the violence in the biblical text did in the last 13 years bring about a radical change in how I think about and interpret certain passages. Now, what's going on there is a process of rational reflection, and then based upon counter evidence to currently held beliefs, you revise those beliefs, which is what I've done, which I think is what rational agents should do. And I assume that it's the same for you, that you you adjust your beliefs based upon evidence. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think that uh, Christians, and before them, the Jews, have revised their beliefs ever since um, uh, God told Moses, uh, uh, you pass, let's see, I'll pass by you and you can see my behind, <laughs> uh, you know, because you can't see my glory in my face. I'll, I'll show you my behind. And so he did it. And, um, Moses was, uh, awed by his butt. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I do mean disrespect. That's the polytheistic God. You know that. Yeah. He was, um, he had a physical body. Like he walked in the cool of the garden of the day. So, um, uh, you yeah at some point you have to say we've gone so far beyond what the initial belief was and we've changed in every generation uh, due to circumstances scientific discoveries social um understandings that we, we are just aren't we just building a castle in the sky one higher level each time and rather than um sticking to the original revelation and we're just making shit up as you go that's how it looks to me that's how it looks to me yeah i understand that and uh so from the perspective of a christian the naturalist who's developing a naturalist interpretation of the world may ultimately be the one building a castle in the sky or on the ground as the case may be so uh each one of us is seeking to develop a worldview and respond to counter evidence and just, just declaring the other one and their whole project absurd from your perspective, fair enough, that's what you think. That is not a defeater. That's not an objection to that other person. Um, now, one thing that you said, so, so you said, well, what about the, why don't you just go with the revelation that it originally came? Why do you keep going beyond that? Well, actually, I addressed that in the talk by, by outlining the concepts of accommodation and progressive revelation, which are foundational to a Christian understanding of the Bible, that God does gradually reveal himself progressively over time, uh, and that God accommodates to the limited understandings of people at particular times and places. One thing that you and I can agree on as well is that the, um, the Hebrew Bible is written against the backdrop of an ancient Near Eastern understanding of the natural world, a three-storied universe, for example, uh, a dome above the earth that holds waters above. And you've referenced the flood narrative. In the flood narrative, the, the gates of heaven open up and water pours down. And that is in the language of the ancient Near East. What a Christian should do to understand that is say whatever's going on theologically in that text is revealed to those people originally through the thought forms and concepts of an ancient Near Eastern worldview. It doesn't mean that that worldview is being conveyed or commended to us to believe, but there are theological concepts being conveyed. And the central idea in the uh, flood narrative comes in chapter 8, verse 1, because I'm sure you know that uh, the flood narrative is an elaborate chiastic poem. And on chapter 8, verse 1, it says, God remembered Noah. 
And the overarching message of the flood narrative, and I agree that the, the violence, it's not genocide, we should be careful about using that term out of context, but it is violence, right? The divine violence of flooding the earth. Um, that is a problem that we'd have to talk about as well. But the main message of the poem is God remembers the righteous. That's the, that's the main thing. And so we have to have these conversations with these texts and figure out what's going on as revealed to the original uh, audiences that received them. Let me quote you, and uh, I'm going to quote you favorably here on page 274. You, you get this right. This is the problem. You, you wrote it well. You might want to try to answer it. Okay. You said, we are not dealing, I think you were using, uh, speaking for the skeptic here, you, but you wrote this. <clears throat> We are not dealing simply with misunderstanding for two decades, but two millennia or more. Moreover, critics will insist that the damage this has done to the credibility of the Bible and the witness of the church has been enormous. People reject Christianity because of crimes committed in the name of Christ and justified by way of biblical precedent. They reject Christianity because of very reasonable uh, violent readings of the good book. They reject Christianity because even now many Christians continue to defend the ethics of a divinely commanded genocide while dehumanizing Canaanites as cancer. Um, and this misreading of biblical violence is not limited to the past. It continues down to the present. The, the, the last two sentences is, is your is your project, you know, to, to help us by not that. But um, the first few sentences, you're not, you're not dealing with two decades, but two millennia has destroyed the credibility of the Bible and the witness of the church and uh, and the crimes that the, the church has done. I mean, it's just, uh, how, how, are you, how, how are you going to, you can't just say, well, sorry, you know, I apologize on behalf of the church. You weren't there. You didn't do those things. But um, someone inspired them in the Bible, which were the um, catalysts, or at least uh, I would have to say partially the motivator. Yeah, that's all we have to claim. We don't have to claim any more than that. But Somehow they inspired it in some ways. Are you going to say? Are you going to say, God? You, can you justify God's dealings for all, for all that? In okay. So, yeah. So, so that comes in the last chapter, of course. Uh, you're quoting from, and, and I would just point out because uh, I think it. I, I like this example that I gave. So um, maybe you appreciate it as well because you're quoting that in the context of talking about Insane Clown Posse. So um, I'm not a fan, I admit, but Insane Clown Posse is apparently, well, they're a horrorcore rap group uh, and they've been and around I, for- I, I didn't know who you were talking about actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, me, well, and so it, it's an interesting example. So th this group came about in the early nineties and they're known for having very violent and misogynistic lyrics. And they actually have their fan base is very rabid. They're called gigolos and they are often known for perpetuating violence. And in about 2009 or 10, uh, the, the two members of Insane Clown Posse came out and said uh, that our, our rapping is all a shtick in, in essence, it's an act. And really what we're saying, if you, if you listen carefully, what we're saying is that um, you need to recognize that we are all sinners and we need God. And they have this motif running through all their albums called the carnival. And they're appealing to the carnival as this framework for challenging people to repent and so on. And so there was an interesting ethical question there that the journalist John Ronson talked about, which is um, assuming that they're being up and uh, upfront about that, that's actually true. Was it really justified to, to fake your sort of this rebellious shtick for two for two decades, and yet you actually had a different message. 
I, and so, yeah, I'm trying to give, I'm giving there the devil's advocate critics voice as you're, as you point out. You, you did well. Yeah. So, um, which is, you know, I want to steal man objections, of course. So, so, so there you have, you could argue, well, it's not just 20 years, it's two millennia. Now, um, so the, the one thing I do, as you would know then in that chapter, however, is I, I point out the, the difficulty of making that a definitive objection. Because in order to make that a definitive objection for a Christian, what you'd have to show is that ultimately the degree of ambiguity that's been presented in that text, which is I, I point the text being scripture, uh, so that you can have these viable debates about something as disturbing as divinely commanded genocide, you'd have to show that God could not have morally sufficient reasons that would ultimately be borne out that 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 degree of ambiguity and so on would lead to a greater outcome in terms of the formation of individuals into being disciples of Christ. And I, I do think, I think you've admitted that you can't really make that as an evidential case. Uh, you're left at the point of saying it seems to you that it's just excessive, that it can't be justified. And I'm saying that doesn't mean it's not justified from my perspective. Well, I, I think that if we just think in terms of what could have been said what could have been done that wasn't it makes it makes uh, everything clearer like i have a better 10 commandments you probably read this in my book on non suffering coming out because i had mentioned that in one of my chapters and i don't need to read all 10 of them but um i uh, i came up some with some better commandments than the ones that uh, uh god supposedly did like for instance commandment one could be something like you should not prohibit the freedom of conscience, the freedom of expression, the freedom of assembly, and the freedom of religion. That alone would uh, prevent a whole lot of conflict and a whole lot of uh, killing and a whole lot of war. Um, let me just um, give you two more, you know, the second and the third commandments. But um, why couldn't my question to you after I read these is <clears throat> why couldn't God have done this? All right, two. You must treat every human being with the utmost dignity they deserve by treating them as they want to be treated. This means you should not harass, repress, enslave, or beat into submission anyone, anywhere, anytime, under any circumstances, especially for the express purpose of slavery. <clears throat> and the third one, you should not treat women as inferior to men, nor shall you rape them or force them to marry or commit adultery or kill them if, you, if they dishonor you, but rather treat them with equal respect and dignity as equally valued them, members of society with equal rights and equal privileges according to, the, to men. That's only the first three. You can, people who want to see the other, you know, others, they can read my book on it. But why couldn't God have done that? I mean, you, you, you're, what you're doing, and my question is, it seems to me is you're justifying after the fact what you're, you believe God did rather than asking the more important question of what could God have done if he really existed. That's, uh, thank you for that. So, so that's a good illustration of what I'm saying is the sort of the, the assumption that the Bible is just a, should be a set of directions for how to get to heaven or an ethical code of how to, to behave and so on. And I'm saying it has, yeah, it's never been that. That clearly was not God's intention. What God's intention was, was to give us this very diverse collection of writings Um that described the experience of God's people, Israel and the early church, early Christians, with all the diversity that you find in the Norton anthology of, of American literature. And I think that there is intrinsic value in such things as ambiguity. There is intrinsic value in such things as vagueness, uh, in such things as a complex text or a complex film that you wrestle with, that you have to watch multiple times, that people debate about, that they try to interpret. 
you know, there are some places that I think are very powerful that when we begin to think about how Jesus deconstructs violence in the Old Testament. So, for example, in Matthew 18, uh, Peter goes to Jesus and he wants to be benevolent. So he says, should I forgive our enemies? Should we forgive our enemies seven times? Which, you know, if, if you've had somebody offend you several times, seven can indeed be pretty benevolent. Well, Jesus says not seven times, but 77 times. And of course, it's it's recognized that that is there. What he's doing is multiplying. You don't stop forgiving. But it's not just that. It appears to be a reference back to Genesis chapter 4, verse 24. Now, Genesis 4 is where all the cycles of violence begin. They, of course, begin with Cain killing his brother. And then it culminates with Lamech at the end of the chapter. And this is what Lamech says. Uh, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. And so that starts the cycle of violence and retribution, uh, that if you offend against me, then I offend against you. Now, this is actually a band I do listen to, Avenge Sevenfold. So um, nice heavy metal band out there. Woohoo! Uh, and that's a reference there to that. Um, but what Jesus is doing there then is he's deconstructing that. He's saying, I believe, this is a common view, that Lamech said retribution, violence, you visit upon people 77 times. Jesus says, no, forgiveness is what you visit upon them 77 times. Uh, one more example, uh, uh, in, in, uh, in Matthew, I believe it's chapter 15, when the woman of the Canaanite woman comes to Jesus. It's a Canaanite, right? And she's described as a Canaanite in the text. She asks for forgiveness or for healing for her daughter who's possessed. Now, interestingly, Jesus kind of brushes her off at first. And he says, it's not right to give the bread of children to the dogs. And that can be really shocking. It's, it's called often one of the hard sayings of Jesus. But then, of course, what she does is respond, but even the dogs get scraps from the table. And then Jesus doesn't look ticked off, like he's been shown up by this outsider. In fact, he congratulates her and blesses her and then heals her daughter. And one view of that and the view that I take in terms of interpreting that passage is that Jesus is blowing up the assumptions about the outsider, in this case, Canaanites, that people had otherized and dehumanized Canaanites. But Jesus, on this occasion, allows this Canaanite woman to elevate herself and become the hero of her own story in terms of her courageous and clever response to him. Now, I find that wrestling with story like this, you come about a deeper, more powerful and moving understanding of the truth that you're describing than you might if you just listed them off as commands. And I think that's one reason why the text is complex, because it invites us into that dialogue. Um, you, you know, you're, you're interesting. You're, you're, you're one of my most interesting specimens. <laughs> Uh, humans are the most interesting specimens of them all. But you, um, again, you, you write in one, on page 124, only when it becomes overwhelmingly clear that there is no plausible or possible alternative interpretation available will one become ob obliged to surrender their prior commitment to the, perfect, to the perfection of the author. Uh, it's hard to... Um, and you are smart. Let's just say it. You're absolutely brilliant. You know, I, I never doubted that because you can do that. You, you have the ability to pull the resources of your wealth of knowledge to provide that possible interpretation of a Canaanite um, a woman 
who is described as a dog, and yet she's the hero of her story. That's just, you know, I, I, I find any woman, anyone being called a dog, anyone owning that, to be um, implausible as a, as a, as a hero uh, story. But, but just overall, you've got an answer for everything. Uh, and I commend you for that, but it's like you can't actually at that point with that view be honest with what's going on in these texts. Uh, there's, there's a lot of um, um, abuse towards women uh, in the texts. There's a lot of things God could have done and didn't. And uh, I find that you just, you, know, you, you say, well, uh, it's not about a rule book, you know, or, or a, a law giving book. Yeah, it's, it's a, uh, a lot of things, but the rules that he gives ought to be good. You know, if you say that uh, you can kill children for insulting their parents or, or someone who commits bestiality, you know, that may be repulsive and against the law, but you, you, I don't think we want to kill somebody for that or someone who commits adultery or works on a Sabbath. These are the kinds of things that the second person of the Godhead, you know, had to be in agreement with the father with to to command it's um uh, you know and and there's obviously things he could have done differently I, I find that you're too smart for your own good too too smart for the truth and so what it comes down to is your experience with god and that's why i said that earlier and i find that well delusional to, not to offend you but um yeah, no problem. Um, so, so the the Canaanite woman. So you, you said you don't find that plausible. So there's a few things here. The, the first thing to keep in mind is is that so we interpret what Jesus does here against the backdrop of who Jesus has been shown to be elsewhere. Uh, and so time and again, when Jesus is interacting with outsiders, with uh, the woman caught in adultery, or the woman at the well, uh, other Samaritans, right. um, tax collectors, lepers and so on, that he's always welcoming. He's always reaching out to them. And so it becomes very anomalous that he doesn't do so here. So you're kind of thinking, well, then what else is going on here? And a charitable reading should invite you to be asking that question. And then, as I said, the next point is that he is so excited. He said, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. He's not irritated uh, by her quick rejoinder, which you could say if, if he was issuing just a racial slur to her, or a dismissive, dehumanizing term because he was disgusted by her ethnicity or something, well, then he'd be pretty irritated that he had just been showing up. But he has the precise opposite interpretation or a response, I should say. So, convert, so in turn, our interpretation then would be there's something else going on here. And I think the very fact that she is vindicated then just shows that he is deconstructing some of these classic views of Canaanites, which is what he does with Samaritans, which is what he does with women, which is what he does with tax collectors and lepers and so on. So I do find that, that I don't think it's as strained as, as you're suggesting here. Where do you get the idea that there, a perfect God exists who, uh, who in, inspires uh, a perfect Bible? I mean, where, 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 I mean, I, I remember back in seminary days, there was a big inerrancy debate. Howard Linzel, you remember him, right? The Battle for the Bible. And uh, I think it was in the 70s. Everybody was commenting on the inerrancy. I mean, they, they had a hardline position. It almost seemed like dictation, you know, to us. Um, uh, we, we, and so they had a debate over, do you have the theory and force the data to fit the theory or do you start with the phenomena? You know what I'm talking about. I'm sure you do. 
So um, what what it seems like to me is you have a theory, right? And you're forcing, you, you would be like the Harold Lindsells, although you, I'm sure you'd reject his view of inerrancy. I, I, know you, I know you do because I read it in your book, but you do it broadly accept inerrancy. But you're, you're asking to have a theory and fit the data to the theory rather than let's look at the data. Let's look at the data of the texts of the Bible and see what we have. That's what that's where I'm starting, and you're not. Well, it seems to me that that what you're describing uh, is a sort of a naive Baconian induction view where one does not begin with a particular interpretive framework for data. One just begins gathering data and sees what you come up with. But in fact, nobody interprets data like that. We all interpret data from a background set of interpretive assumptions. The Christian does so as well as the atheist. Now, the interesting thing here is like you begin your uh, your your opening remarks um, with an approach that I, I think I'm going to say is very one-sided. You're you're highlighting throughout all of the violence and that you find off-putting and disturbing within the Bible. Fair enough. Um, what you're doing, however, is I think the exact opposite of what many Christians do, which is they just look at the quote-unquote good stuff, you know, where God is being gentle and kind and so on. I think both of you, uh, you and that Christian, are in danger of exhibiting a selection bias, that you have a particular set of assumptions and you only read the text for those assumptions, and then you both end up with a skewed perspective. And what I'm arguing for is to be, yeah, become aware of our assumptions um, and take in the totality and recognize that you get conflicting images here. And if you are a Christian, then you do believe God revealed this. And so the process of theological reflection is the process of working out the apparent contradictions. And I mean, that that's, yeah, like if I have an answer for everything, which I don't, but if I, even if I did, I don't take that as a bad thing. I do because, well, I mean, we could just say, no, you don't. Yes, you do. No, you don't. Yes, you do. But I see, I seem to see so much in there. Okay. Um, that um, that you you're blinded to, you know. I mean, that's my view. Now I'm going to show you a book. Hector Avalos, the bad. May he rest in peace. Yes, I love that man. Yeah. Um, but uh, this is a, a a book I recommend. Is that uh, is that backward to you? No, no, we can see it. The bad Jesus. Uh, the bad Jesus, the ethics of New Testament ethics, and he. If for anyone who thinks that Jesus was a you know a good guy, a sinless guy. Uh, I'm just recommending that. Uh, we don't have to debate that or look into it so much. Just there it is. And um, you, you need to look at more than just the statement, you know, Jesus was sinless. You have, you have to ask yourself, uh, like I'm asking, uh, he endorsed certain things that you find repensable now. And, um, and so did his church, you know, and so did the writings of, that were gathered into the church. And uh, I, I don't think there's any way of getting around it and saying, well, no. Um, uh, Jesus really was against, you know, the genocide of, of uh, Noah's flood, for instance, you know, I mean, um, whether it took place or not, the idea, and which it didn't, uh, the idea is reprehensible. Yeah, um, well, fair enough. Um, again, I, I think that we have a, bit, a little bit of a standoff here, because we both have different approaches. Um, and I do think that we both have starting assumptions you begin, for example, you clearly assume that if Jesus existed at all, he was just human. I begin with a different assumption. And then we're both going to read the text in a way that's probably going to confirm our assumptions. And where things seem to bump up against our assumptions, we should be aware of that and then ready to revise our beliefs in light of that. Uh, so what I've tried to argue in the book, as, as you would know, and then also tonight, 
um, is that the Christian doesn't have to feel obliged to adopt any one particular view, but the Christian should recognize that there has always been a diversity of views about how to interpret these texts that refer to the commanding of divine violence. And I do think the most troubling or egregious ones are the cases in Deuteronomy 7 and 20 uh, and Joshua 1.12 and a few other places like the Midianites in Numbers 31 and the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15, where actions are commanded, which do seem to meet the contemporary legal definition of genocide and of ethnic cleansing. You referenced the Rwandans, so as I argued at some length in the book, if you really want to appreciate what is being proposed there, give a thick narrative description of what genocide looks like on the ground, and in particular, intimate close contact killing, such as happened in Rwanda, which would have been much like what would have happened uh, in ancient Canaan if that in fact did occur as, as narrated. Uh, and then you need to consider, well, then could God really have commanded something like that? And if you think, no, he couldn't have commanded something like that, um, well, there's a whole other interpretive tradition well ensconced within the Christian church, going back to people like Origen, um, and you don't have to adopt his view, but just recognize you don't have to sacrifice your moral intuitions when you're reading the Bible. I appreciate your uh, referencing uh, Dave Grossman's on killing the psychological cost of learning to kill in war and society. I thought that I had heard of that book before, uh, and uh, when he describes close contact genocide, it's uh, it's harmful to the people who are performing the acts. And so uh, one of my uh, commenters on, on my blog simply asked, and I think he's right to ask, uh, why didn't God, God just kill them? I mean, there's, there's a certain way that we see God killing people by snapping his fingers and a snake goes through a crowd and, and or snakes go through the crowd and they die. Or my preferred method, if God wants to kill off people, just um, just reduce their mating cycles, you know, just keep women barren and wait a generation and you've killed them off. I mean, that is so simple, so easy, so clean, so nice and no pain that God apparently, here's my preaching voice getting involved. He didn't think of it, you know. Um, those are the kinds of questions I ask. Well, and there's something we haven't talked about here as of yet, which is the whole question of historicity. So uh, right. I'm not a Bible scholar. I'm a systematic theologian, uh, and I'm certainly not an ancient historian or archaeologist or anything like that. But mind. Yeah. So typically, although you got a hat that would go well with it, <laughs> but uh, but typically, so so the the the... Conquest of Canaan is placed at about 1220 BC, but uh, from what I've read on this topic, which is a fair bit, um, there's a lot of evidence that, in fact, the text, the Deuteronomic history of Deuteronomy and Joshua didn't really achieve the form in which we have it now until perhaps the time of the Josianic reform, so around late 7th century, about 610 maybe BC, which would be, you know, 600 some years perhaps after the alleged events. Um, so there's that, and that should raise uh, a significant question for people, right, from a historical perspective, um, because Christians are so strong in arguing for the intimacy of the Gospels' references to the life of Jesus as being very important to belief in the veracity of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They should then also consider a perhaps 600-year time gap uh, here and, and think what that might say about the history. And then there are also a lot of other archaeological issues that are problematic with the conquest narrative. So whether it in fact happened is another important question from a historical or archaeological view. The one thing I would say is this, that um, the, the faith of Christians does not rest upon the 
conquest of Canaan, whatever your interpretation of it, it rests on the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what is central in the creeds. And so I think that's where Christians should really be focused on sort of uh, defending their case. You're becoming a liberal. Uh, I mean, no. not, not that you care, but you are. Okay, the term liberal is, is not a very informative term. Okay, you're a uh, because, socialist too. Because liberal is a relative term, right? Liberal relative to some conservative or fundamental. I was actually called a fundamentalist about a week ago by somebody. So uh, the one thing is to keep in mind that I do argue for plenary inspiration of all scripture. I know you do. Uh, and inerrancy. Inerrancy, as, as you referenced, inerrancy with, now you said a general term of inerrancy. No, I affirm the inerrancy of the biblical text relative to or with respect to the intentions of the divine author, the which divine may, divine yeah, author. Which may author. differ from the human author. So when the imprecatory psalmist says God hates your enemies, God may be appropriating that into his scripture, but not affirming that sentiment. He's doing something else with it. But still, I think it's all authoritative there, and, and the Christian has to wrestle with it as they seek to be conformed to Jesus. Yeah, the inerrancy debate went from Howard Linzel for every jot and tittle to the idea that, no, what we're de really dealing with is contextual. That is, it's, it's inerrant based on its context. That is, uh, we could affirm that uh, Genesis is myth, but that's its intended, you know, uh, revelation. So it's inherently true in that it's communicating that myth well. And uh, now we're we're uh, one step beyond that. Well, we're not having to worry about myth, but we can actually deny historical periods of time and just simply say it's whether it's divine. But it's still dividing that up. And inerrancy is so watered down to those of us like myself who used to hold to the Linzel inerrancy at least one time. Uh, that it's no longer inerrancy. It's like, well, so I just now have to decide what was divine and what wasn't. Uh, it makes, and some people would say, well, that makes you God. I mean, that makes you the church, the priests, the Catholics, uh, Pope. Uh, you're the one deciding for yourself, of course, only yourself. But as you teach, then you're deciding for others. So in, as, as you know, in, in the book, I give an example from James Joyce, his famous novel, Ulysses. And in Ulysses, there are, uh, some grammatical errors, which were corrected by later copy editors, uh, but they incurred the wrath of the reading public when it was recognized that, in fact, those errors were included intentionally by James Joyce. So when he includes an error uh, grammatically within the text, he's actually making another point with respect to the themes of the novel. And I don't think that's watered down at all. I think that's a very robust understanding of what Joyce is doing in his novel. By the same token, if there are human errors with respect to the voice of the human author within scripture, I nonetheless understand all of that consistent with divine authorial intents. I don't think that's watered down at all. I think what that is, is a very robust understanding of what God is doing within this text and an invitation to the reader to wrestle with it again, consistent with their moral intuitions. Um, now, I, sh I should just drop this in that moral intuitions, like every other aspect of our reasoning, are not infallible. So they can be wrong. They can be corrected. But nonetheless, they do provide a good prima facie starting point for reasoning. Yeah, you said that in your book. You said that. That's uh, moral intuitions uh, provide a bedrock. But then later when discussing, I think, the just war apologists, I think it was in that section, you said, well, uh, we, we can't always assume our moral intuitions um, are you know always going to be true? I, I can find uh, 
find that, uh, but um, you, you, all of a sudden you, you change your mind. Oh yeah, I said, uh, in that section, you said our moral intuitions are fallible and prone to error, just like every other source of belief, page 157. So on, on one hand, you say it's, uh, our intuitions are the moral bedrock, such that God you know, could not command uh, the Canaanite genocide, yet later you say they're uh, fallible and prone to error. And I, don't know why, yeah. I don't know why you said that exactly. Maybe there's, there's no inconsistency there. So... Um, there, there have a, all you have to do, for example, uh, read James Cone's book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, where, where he goes through the history of lynching during Jim Crow era in America. More than 5,000 people were, were lynched, were killed, 5,000 African-Americans. Uh, probably the majority of those by people who were professing Christians, who, who thought this was a great thing when they were watching a black man or a black woman being strung up in a tree and hanged to death. Now, that right there is all you need for evidence that we can be very deeply in error in our moral reasoning. So that's pretty clear. At the same time, what we should do then is really reflect on our intuitions. If something seems to us to be wrong, uh, then we should begin to reflect on that and say, is my intuition correct here or is it is it an error? And if we get to a point where we're still saying after some period of reflection, no, that just seems wrong to me, well, then we are fully justified in believing that is definitely wrong. And so if you are in a situation like Rwanda in 1994 and your your family begins killing your neighbors and you're this, this Hutu and you're thinking, ah, it seems wrong to me, but everyone's doing it, even the pastor's doing it. Well, I think even if the whole world does it, but if it seems to you most fundamentally wrong, you're justified in retaining that moral intuition. So that's how I'm bringing those things together. I, I'm doing all the questions. You probably have, have questions for me, but I have, I have two more that I'd like to sure. ask you. In my talk, I talked about your moral intuitions, and I the very first one I said, well, why don't you reject the, um, the Adam and Eve story uh, from those same moral intuitions? Because that's the story that has produced all the suffering down through time that every sentient being has ever uh, suffered, both man and beast. I would think that um, if you want to use your moral intuitions, you should reject the Adam and Eve story. Why don't you? It's not It's not a story that wreaks havoc or creates suffering or whatever you're describing there. It's particular interpretations or appropriations of a story. So for example, I think it was Lynn White in 1967 or 68 famously argued that uh, the, the language of Genesis chapter one of of um, Adam and Eve, uh, you know, uh, it's destructive for the environment. I think it is. Yeah, stewarding. Yeah, so so uh, tame the earth or whatever the, the language is, uh, just escaping right now. The creation mandate, as it's often called, uh, that that justified all sorts of reprehensible, indiscriminate use of the land and pollution and so on. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. So so yeah, the, the reality here is that you can take and appropriate stories and justify all kinds of behaviors. Um, that doesn't mean that the story itself is problematic. I think the Genesis 1 is a profound narrative, which does several things. It disenchants the world in the sense that it's saying you don't worship nature. Uh, there is one creator over all things, and that's what you worship, that it gives uh, structure and purpose to the world, which many people have argued was a major motivation for the development of modern science. And it elevates uh, human beings 
uh, to be in the image of God, to recognize the intrinsic value of human beings, that, that, it is, that, that we are to be valued and respected and cherished, uh, and that human beings properly understood the creation mandate is, is not to exploit the earth, but to be a steward of it, just like a gardener tends the garden that he or she does not own, but has been commissioned to tend. That's our role. And I think properly understood, Genesis 1 is, is a powerful narrative for creation care. Uh, I'm talking about Genesis uh, 3, um, you know, the fall. It's traditionally ascribed to, the, to the, the Adam and Eve's actions. Uh, and it probably isn't really the real fall. The real fall might have been the, uh, the uh, angelic uh, beings had, uh, having sex with uh, the daughters of men in, uh, in Genesis 6, the first few verses. I mean, that may be the real fall. Uh, I've, so I've read from some Old Testament you know, scholars, but uh, traditionally the Adam and Eve story is um, led to the fall of all creation. That's what most people have believed that that the fall of creation, which caused the pain and suffering and the eating of animals and and the the thistles and the and the mayhem that uh, otherwise innocent people in a garden wouldn't have suffered. Yeah, so again, we're back to that same issue about how do you interpret and appropriate a story? So it's yeah. the story is one thing, how you interpret or appropriate it is another. Uh, in terms of natural science, I mean, I accept natural science as it is given to us, the major views of Earth history. Earth is 4.6 billion years old. Uh, you know, Homo sapiens appeared when 100,000 years ago or, or Homo sapiens sapiens. Um, and that there's a long history, a long evolutionary history before us. Uh, I have no problem with that. Um, and that there's there's natural history, including death and so on, before the appearance of human beings. So you have to interpret that. And there have been various interpretations of that. So uh, that's a whole other conversation in a sense. But um, there is an ongoing discussion about that. The, the point being, however, that the text itself doesn't bring about the, any of the negative effects that you're talking about. What it is doing in Genesis 3 is providing an interpretive framework to understand that things are not as they should be. That, uh, to, to use the language of Romans 8, creation groans now, and it does long for its own restoration in the future, which is, of course, the great Christian hope, the new heavens and new earth. So um, to me, it actually properly understood provides a very powerful way to interpret and understand reality, and it's not a justification for violence. Well, women, women were, um, let's see, uh, man were, man is uh, granted to rule over women at that point. I mean, and, and I think in the text, we'd have to look it up, but uh, he shall rule over you. That kind of stuff apparently took place when, uh, when, when they fell into sin. But, uh, okay, so you just simply would reject that. I mean, I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that. I think that there was never an Adam and Eve. I don't think science allows for that. Uh, there's, there's never been a bottleneck. Uh, in the uh, scope of evolution, where there's just been two people that became, you know, uh, the people, you know, uh, but, um, but, it, you know, it's, so I, I welcome that, but um, a lot of people would have trouble with that. Uh, yes, I, I like you, you point out um, that, that the relationships between man and woman after the fall are different than before the fall. And after the fall, it should not be viewed as normative. It should be viewed as descriptive. So there is brokenness in creation, and we can recognize that, and we can seek to redress it. But importantly, in Genesis chapter 2, uh, the description is of Eve coming out of the side of Adam. And as commentators will point out, the side suggests equality. Uh, and in fact, Eve is also described as a helper of the man, of Adam, but in the same way that God is described as being a helper of human beings. So, so there's not a sense there of inferiority. 
Now, was much of the Bible written from a patriarchal perspective? I think it was written from the perspective of, of particular patriarchal structures that God accommodated to those uh, in the ancient Near East uh, in the first century, perhaps. And you have to understand and interpret that and look for that and then wrestle with it, which comes back again to that whole invitation of Jacob wrestling with the angel in Genesis 32. God is leaving you uh, with a lot of wrestling to do. I'm glad I don't have to wrestle with that kind of stuff. It's a lot easier not having to do that. <laughs> well, you know what? It's 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 something that Abraham does. Uh, interestingly, at Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham challenges God. Are you going to really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And then he bargains him down from 50 to 10. It's what Moses does in Exodus 32 when God resolved to destroy the people. And then Moses says, you can't do that. It's what Job does throughout the book of Job when he's constantly questioning God. And at the very end, God says the one righteous person was Job after it all. And it's what the psalmist does time and again. So yeah, I do think that wrestling and questioning is in the DNA of Israel, of God's people. And with the church grafted into that, I think we can own that and not be afraid of the questions and being afraid to recognize where there are challenges to our Christian beliefs. And I have just one last question. I, I, I thank you for entertaining my questions. I, I think maybe you, you want us to debate so you can be put on the griddle of, of uh, questions and, and you've, you've pretty, fir- pretty much figured you'd be able to you'll come out unscathed because of how you interpret things. Um, and you are never going to give in to anything but the perfection of God and, you know, and his word. And uh, I knew that. But uh, on page 276, you misconstrue something. Now I'm going to get you on this. <clears throat> you have uh, three, four propositions about um, what the Bible is and what the skeptic thinks about the Bible. And uh, you mischaracterized our view. Now, what I'm doing here is I'm going to write out our true view, not your, I'm not going to mention how you skewed it, but you did skew it. And you'll see it when I read this. This is what you should have said. Here's the problem of divine miscommunication. Uh, you, you said something about uh, the guy who was going to make uh, disciples, and uh, and he did, in fact, make disciples. So what's the problem? Something like that. But one, here's my, uh, here's what you should have written. If God is the primary author of Scripture, then at the very least, it should not lead to gross error such that it causes horrendous suffering. That's premise one. Two, the degree of ambiguity in scripture is inconsistent with a text that leads to gross error such that it causes horrendous suffering. Three, therefore, scripture is not able to avoid gross error such that it causes horrendous suffering. And therefore, God is not the primary author of scripture. That's the actual argument. Can you you want to address that? I'll give you a chance to address that, Randall. And this is the last point before we have to go into the Q&A. So go ahead, Randall. All right. Uh, well, thanks for the question. So, uh, you Why said, uh, okay, you, you said, uh, clear and simple. Okay. Um, you want to meet my wife? Yeah. <laughs> Come here, hey, we're, we're informal yeah. here. Yeah. That's my wife. Come Hello. here. She's okay. a sweetheart. She just, she just wants uh, to <laughs> Hello. see you. <laughs> well, you know, I've always wondered why there has to be interpretation of the Bible in God's word. You'd think God, being who he is, would make it clear and simple. Yes. 
<laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> hey, this isn't fair. I'm getting double teamed now. So, <laughs> well, but in terms of in terms of your of, of your statement of the argument, uh, John, you said that I'm misrepresenting the skeptics. I think you did. Yeah, uh, there, there's not simple one. There's not one view of skeptics. So I was I was trying to to strongman an objection. If you like your formulation of the argument better than the one I gave, that's fair enough. Um, so I, I can just leave it at that. I, I wanted to just come back to the to the other thing where you said I'm never going to give in um, so so in terms of um, let me give an illustration and then I'll conclude and turn it back to James and to the questions that we they may be for us so uh, in Cuba as you know that that they because of the US embargo that they still have cars from the 1950s that have been driven around for 60 70 years the interesting thing is if, if you want to keep a car on the road in perpetuity, you can do so as long as you're willing to replace more and more parts evermore. You need a new engine, you replace the engine, you can do so, et cetera, right? Uh, and it's the same thing with belief systems. So if disconfirming evidence of your belief system comes in, you can always revise the belief system in a lesser or greater way to accommodate for that apparent disconfirming evidence. Um, and so you can't really falsify anything in an absolute sense because you can always revise the belief, whatever it is, whether it be naturalism or Christianity or something else. Um, and so it's very difficult, again, to come back to something I said earlier, and I'll conclude with this, to just say at the outset, this is what I would, what it would take for me to give up my fundamental beliefs about the nature of reality. Um, what we do have to recognize is that we can, in principle, um, keep revising our beliefs forever if we want to. But at some point, we will probably find, if the evidence gets to a certain level, that it's just no longer worth keeping the car on the road, and that's when we park it and we get a new car or have a, a conversion of belief. Um, and so you think I should have taken the car off the road years ago, but I'm enjoying my 1957 Bel Air. We will jump into the q and I want to say thank you very much, folks, for your questions. Thank you so much to John and Randall. It's been a true pleasure. And folks, they're linked in the description. If you have been here this long, folks, this far into the debate, well, hey, you probably enjoyed listening. And so you can hear more as well as read more from our guests at those links in the description box. And so we are going to jump into it first with Will's question, who says, Randall, please explain. This is a verse they cite. They say in parentheses, I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Yeah, so I believe that's from Isaiah. Uh, so I have a chapter in my book, Conversations with My Inner Atheist, that came out last year, where I talk about theories of nature and how to understand nature uh, with respect to verses like that. Because in the ancient Near Eastern world, or in the world of the ancient Israelites, they understood, they didn't understand a discrete realm of nature as we understand today that can be investigated by science they understood natural events to be immediate expressions of the divine will. And so uh, if you have an earthquake, if you have a flood or something else, it automatically gets interpreted as the malevolent action of a particular deity. Now, one way to understand that is to say that that represents the accommodation to the understanding of those ancient people, that God wanted to meet them where they were at. And so he revealed himself to them in the understanding that they interacted through him in the immediacy of nature. You got it. Thank you very much for your question. This one coming in from Silver Harlow says, John, let's see. 
They are they're coming after you. They're grilling you for the ridicule. They said. So let's see. I to, in uh, in John's defense, Randall mentioned that he thinks it was good friendly poking. So uh, we uh, next up this one coming from Doubting Thomas. Thanks for your super sticker. Appreciate it. And Wills says, Randall, are you a quote process theologian unquote? The short answer is no. Process theology depends on a very elaborate metaphysic where the fundamental constituents of reality are processes rather than substances. And I'm not that I'm a, a metaphysical, I hold to a metaphysical view of substance. You got it. And thank you very much for your question. Mr. Lightning 20 says, so some of these are questions, some are statements or objections. You could say Mr. Lightning 20 says God drowned everyone, including babies and animals in Noah's genocidal flood because the world was wicked. Did this fix anything given the later genocides? Uh, so is that for me, I guess? I think well, so. I don't believe there was a flood, flood so yeah. yes. Yeah, so so again, I said when when we want to interpret what's going on in, in a, a passage like Genesis 6 to 9, uh, the first of all, begin to understand that what is going on there is that it is a chiastic poem and that the main message is that God remembered Noah, the bigger message that God remembers the righteous. Um, and then what you do beyond that in terms of understanding that in terms of historical or something is an additional conversation. But there would be good objections to, to the concept of God judging people through that kind of divine violence in, in an active way, for sure. Gotcha. And this one coming in from Will Stewart says, John, if scripture says that the communicable attributes of God include love, patience, justice, wrath, jealousy, and vengeance... Uh, let's see. Then how do you find the text showing those as a contradiction? Well, uh, <clears throat> I, I'm not uh, discussing that. This isn't part of the debate. I mean, is there, um, is he trying to say that there are contradictions? I'm, I'm supposing that there are contradictions between wrath and good. Well, what I'm saying is this. Um, um, uh, if you obey God, he's going to be good to you. You know, he's going to reward you. You know, actually, there's something to the prosperity gospel in the Bible. Not entirely, because there's also no promises that disaster won't strike. But there's uh, some of it that uh, justifies the prosperity gospel. And uh, and yet, if you disobey, uh, some of the harshest punishments will come down on you. I mean, you just it's, that's the kind of thing I was mentioning in my talk. And, and that is, um, if you disobey... It's you got hell to pay. I mean, you know, you could lose your your children. You know, you could lose your life. You know, you could lose your property. Uh, um, and uh, if I find, find those uh, punishments extreme to the max, yes. so um, um, uh, the, the God's wrath is really um, overpowering. Not that He doesn't show some love, but it's only if we obey. It's my view of how of the Scripture. You got it. And doubting Thomas, thanks for your super sticker as well as. Libra Laura, thank you very much for your support. Mr. Lightning 20 chimes in again, says, Did every firstborn child and livestock in Egypt deserve to die because Pharaoh wouldn't let them go as God was hardening his heart? Good question. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, here's a good example I talk about in my book, Gregory of Nyssa, theologian in the 4th century, in his Life of Moses. 
uh, he says, first of all, that it, it's wrong for, for God to condemn children for the actions of adults. Um, and then he actually appeals in terms of an internal biblical critique to Exodus chapter 18, 23, where uh, the prophet says there that each person should die for their own sin, not for the sin of another. And so then he says there must be a deeper spiritual meaning there. And so he actually spiritualizes that narrative and seems to dehistoricize it both on moral grounds and also on internal uh, critiques based upon scripture itself. And that is what that tells us is that this is not a new question, right? This is a question that goes back to the early years of the church. And we do have these different traditions of how to interpret and appropriate scripture uh, so that if you do have these kinds of moral questions or, or problems that the, the questioner is raising, that there are different interpretive frameworks that are available within the church. You got it. And thank you very much for your question. This one coming in from Silver Harlow says, if Genesis is to be taken as myth, might the fall be understood the way Pandora's box is understood? Well, so myth, I, I'm not sure how the, the questioner is in, uh, intending that term. So myth can mean in popular parlance, not true. Uh, but myth, uh, in terms of a technical sense, is a story uh, a narrative that conveys universal import for the structure or nature of reality. And there are various interpretations of particularly Genesis 1 to 11, which would qualify as mythic in that latter sense. So the issue is not whether this happened or not, but rather the issue is that these are narratives which, which illumine or, or tell us how reality is structured. And on that view, Genesis 3 as myth means that it tells us something about the fundamentally about the nature of reality, that things are not as they should be. And certainly you could take a view of Genesis 3 as myth in that sense, that it is conveying uh, universal disorderedness and brokenness of creation. You got it. And this question coming in from Will says, Randall, Scripture uses the same term, quote unquote, calamity to describe actions other than natural events for example, the conquest of peoples, etc. Why assign the word calamity to only natural events? Um, I don't know. I mean, that's a, that's a really, to me, I'm not sure what, what the issue is for the, the questioner there. I think the translation can mean disaster, you know, I mean, but I don't know why it's confined to natural events. It may or may not be. We'd have to look at the word, but one, yeah, what, what happens in, in terms of the text that I was focusing on here, which I do think are most egregious in terms of what a Christian has to wrestle with, uh, and so again, Deuteronomy 7, 20, uh, is the harem passages. In other words, those are it's a Hebrew term that refers to giving over to destruction, that God is giving over the Canaanites to destruction. And so, to my mind, those are, those are the most troubling from a moral perspective, and that's where a Christian should really, that's ground zero. Um, if you can figure out how to wrestle with the parent genocide texts of, of uh, Joshua, of for Samuel, of, of Deuteronomy, then you've gone a long way toward addressing biblical violence more generally. And that's why that was my focus here tonight. You got it. And this question from Temujin Jag says, with thousands of different moral intuitions and exegesis regarding any holy book, how can you verify or falsify which one is correct? Like, uh, it's not quite the topic of today's debate, but if you want to take a crack at it, it's up to you. Well, from my from my perspective, as I kind of said at the outset, the topic of tonight's debate is not why I accept right the, the Bible. So you're right, it is beyond the scope 
Um, I have written a few books defending my views as to why I believe Christianity is true. One of them, John will be happy to see, is right here. We co-authored this uh, about eight years ago now, God or Godless, and I've written a few other books as well defending my views. So in those books, I provide positive arguments for why I believe Christianity is true. In this debate, I'm trying to deal with an objection. And so I think that's all part of the package of the rational defense of belief is to look at arguments and grounds for your belief and also respond to objections. You got it. And want to let you know, folks, our guests are linked in the description. So we would highly encourage you. You can check out their links below. And we want to say a huge thank you to our guests. What I'm going to do, folks, is in a moment, I'm going to come back with a post-credit scene letting you know about some epic news for the channel that we're very excited about and you have to hear about. But let me just scan to be absolutely sure I got every single question. And so we do want to say thank you so much to our guests, John and Randall. It's been a true pleasure to have you guys here tonight. Thanks. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. It's been great. Absolutely. We'll be right back with a post-credit scene in just a moment. Thanks, everybody. So hang tight. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.